Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This is a podcast that seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. It's a podcast that hopes to provide conversations on hot topics and debates that will be of interest to experts in the field, but also to help make those areas of law and policy more intelligible and accessible to the non-expert. So if you're new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to listen to episode one, in which I talk more about the purpose and scope of the podcast and lay some of the foundation for most of the issues we discuss through the various episodes. And if you're not new to the podcast and you're finding it helpful and enjoyable, please do spread the word to your friends, colleagues, students, and consider posting a review on your podcast app and or a plug for it on social media. Our guest today is Rebecca Ingber, who will be well known to many listeners. She is a professor of law at Cardozo Law School, who specializes in international and national security law, and she served for several years in the office of the legal advisor at the U.S. State Department. Our discussion today takes us as its starting point, an essay Rebecca recently published in Just Security called Legally Sliding into War, in which she analyzes how international law and constitutional law together operate to facilitate the incremental moves by which the United States initiates, expands, and extends armed conflicts. Each step in the incremental process involves legal justifications and rationales for that step, with legal interpretations that are made in good faith, but many of which are strained, to say the least. And the international law rules, in particular, are looked to by Congress and the courts as limiting principles, but then are interpreted by the executive in expansive ways that do not serve to limit very much at all. And what is more, and perhaps most important to her argument, the focus on these legal justifications tends to displace and obscure a necessary, deeper policy analysis of the contemplated action. I won't say too much more about the main argument here, but I will say that as we work through the main argument, our discussion touches on a host of other fascinating issues, such as the importance of where precisely within the government interpretations of international law are made what responsibility legal academics may have to push back more firmly and rigorously against some of the more extreme American government legal interpretations, how and to what extent the constitutional and domestic law rules interact with and relate to the relevant international law principles, and the conflation of use ad bellum and use in bello, and the conflation of domestic law and international law principles in some of the rationales for use of force in the global war on terror. All in all, it's a fascinating and sweeping look at many of the complex issues that underlay the process by which America slides into armed conflict. So with that, I bring you Rebecca Ingber. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for making time for this. I'm so happy to be here. And as you know, before we dive into the substance, I've been asking our guests to the podcast to share something about themselves that is something a little off the wall, something that maybe your colleagues, even some of your friends might not know about you. So becoming a lawyer was never really my plan A. And I guess one thing that is less known about me is that my real dream was to become a nightclub singer. <laughs> I never actually put that into effect. Um, and I ended up as a, as a lawyer. And these days, really, the, the songs that I tend to have running through my heads are the theme songs to my kids' TV shows. So I think I'm going to stick with my day job. <laughs> All right. Well, that is interesting. So, but no moonlighting on the side while you're in, you know, with the move no to New York? No moonlighting for now, yeah. <laughs> okay. We'll see. I'll keep you posted. Well, we could talk about many different aspects of your work on the different aspects of the laws of war and war powers, but in keeping with past practice, I thought we'd talk about some of your most recent work. And in particular, you have this really interesting piece in Just Security called Legally Sliding into War in which you examine the process by which the United States, the executive branch in particular, initiates, extends, expands armed conflicts. And it does this through this process of small incremental steps, each one of these steps being justified by legal arguments sounding in both domestic constitutional law and international law, and that these legal rationalizations tend to displace and short circuit the necessary policy debate on the wisdom of engaging in such conflicts to begin with. And so we're sort of sleepwalking into conflicts and expanding conflicts through this incremental process. So I thought we could walk through that argument and explore. I mean, it raises a whole host of of really interesting issues. And towards the end of that, circle back to a law review article that you published a few years ago on the way in which international law limitations are often relied upon to expand the executive branch authority, a theory which you invoke in this recent piece in which 
seems a bit counterintuitive and I think you know, it would be really interesting for us to dig into a little bit deeper. So with that, maybe I'll just turn it over to you to just start walking us through the arguments and then we'll, we'll take it one step at a time. Yeah, so the impetus behind this last piece, as a teacher, I face a lot of skepticism about whether or not law has any constraining effect on the president, international law in particular, but as they start to learn more, they think more about constitutional law and domestic war powers issues as well. And you see sort of a range of views, both in in my students, but also in in the world at large about the effect of law on the president on the president. And the views tend to range from, on the one hand, this view of law as an obvious constraint. There are rules and those rules are meant to be followed and you're either following them or you're not following them. And on the other side, there is a real skepticism about whether the law plays any role at all in war. Even among the skeptics, I think there's sort of insufficient nuance about both the way the law does play a constraining role, but also even when it is not playing a sufficiently constraining role, I think it's more complicated than the simple narrative that lawyers are basically just a rubber stamp for the president. I don't think that's what's going on. I think there's a lot of good faith that is at play here and a lot of very serious lawyering that goes on in most presidential administrations and that I saw take place and that I engaged in myself. And yet, despite all of that good faith and all of those efforts at really considering and construing legal constraints, what I see is that over time, that all of that legal work leads to this sort of incrementally ratcheting up, ratcheting up of executive power vis-a-vis the other branches. And in the case, what I focused on this piece, ratcheting up of the legal arguments that permit the president to use greater and greater force that results ultimately in us sliding into war. Right. I just wanted to echo, I mean, I think you you really do make the case quite strongly in the piece that you think law matters and reject the idea that law is somehow irrelevant, which is was really interesting. Even while you're making the argument that these incremental legal rationalizations tend to, in a sense, facilitate the slide into war. And you make this case that the international and the domestic law regimes that govern the use of force are deeply intertwined. And I want to come back to that point. But I want to focus perhaps first on the international law, because you you walk through how a number of different moves by executive branch lawyers over the last sort of 20 years, particularly you know, sort of in the global war on terror, have lowered the threshold for engaging in armed conflict, for using force against non-state actors in non-consenting states, for example. So maybe we can just sort of walk through your litany of these these interpretive moves that have lowered the constraints on use of force. Yeah. And of course, these are really intertwined, right? So the piece was focused, you know, at different times, depending on the audience, I'll focus on the international law implications or, you know, in the case of Congress's re-engagement right now on war powers, we're focusing on the domestic war power side of this. But these are really intertwined. And therefore, I was focusing on both of them in the piece. And one of the ways that this occurs in both the domestic and in the international law space is that the United States as a whole, right, states under the international legal regime have a certain limited right to use force unilaterally, even without the UN Security Council, when they are acting in self-defense, right? This is this is widely known to your listenership, I'm sure. And likewise, there is sort of a parallel authority, implicit authority that has been carved out for the president in domestic law, which is that even though the, the Constitution gives Congress the power to declare war, the president is widely understood to have some limited power to repel attacks. And over time, I think that these have been construed almost as if they are coterminous with one another, but there's no reason to think that they should be. And in fact, the fact that the United States as a whole is permitted to use force as a matter of international law doesn't necessarily mean that It doesn't necessarily decide the question of who within the state should be making that determination, whether it should be Congress or the president, for example. When we think about the international law question, whether or not the United States as a whole can use force, there's a very clear substantive standard laid out in the UN Charter that 
the United States can only use force in self-defense to an armed attack in order to repel that armed attack, right? And only when it is necessary and proportionate, we know from customary international law, when it is necessary and proportionate to do so. Over time, the U.S. view of when it can use force in self-defense in response to an armed attack has expanded significantly. The, the standard for what is an armed attack has been lowered. The United States has generally construed any use of force to rise to be the equivalent of an armed attack, giving rise to its authority to respond in force in kind. And whether or not it need be an actual armed attack or an imminent armed attack has been expanded. And so while I think most would agree that if the United States were truly under an imminent attack such that something was actually, you know, in the, in the sort of colloquial sense of imminence or the long understood sense of imminence, something that was actually immediate under uh, immediately underway. I think there are very few who would argue that the United States couldn't respond. But the United States has gradually over time expanded and elongated this idea of imminence such that in some circumstances, it has viewed a threat that may be years in coming to be a sufficiently imminent threat giving rise to its right to respond in self-defense. So on the international law plane, the U.S. executive branch lawyers have put forward fairly expansive views of when the United States as a whole can respond with force. And then on the domestic law plane, if the view is that the president can respond whenever the United States can respond with self-defense, that really cuts out Congress out of the, out of the loop entirely. Right. And just to add, I mean, a couple of the other points that you made in the article, which are in the, the essay, which I thought were really interesting was, as you put it in the essay, these are elements that tend to get less attention. But, you know, the reliance on unit self-defense, understanding rules of engagement, and the expansion of unit self-defense to also include the self-defense or the defense of allied forces, so that, that all of a sudden there's a, a use of a the concept of collective self-defense, which is entirely divorced from collective self-defense in Article 51 of the Charter, it's really collective self-defense of units that happen to be of allied forces, but nonetheless, which, when exercised, can escalate into a use of force that may or may not be consistent with Article 51 of the Charter. So maybe you can just say a few more words about that and how all, I mean, all of these, as you point out, when you get to the Al-Shabaab, and we can, we can come back to the Al-Shabaab example, but you illustrate all of this with the manner in which the United States engaged in armed conflict with Al-Shabaab and point out that there was a combination of all of these elements, all of which had their sort of dubious legal aspects, but when combined in one rationalization, really takes on these rather you know, shady proportions. Yeah, the unit self-defense legal mechanism is a really complex one. And it's, I mean, with all of these things, it's these are fraught, and I'm still working through them myself. But just to explain the, the unit self-defense concept, the idea there, as you said, it's really a conflation of use ad bellum and use in bello concepts, right? And so the idea is that if U.S. forces are situated abroad in a situation in which they face a, an, if they come under attack, but even under our standing rules of engagement, if they face a hostile threat, they have claimed, you know, they have a, a, an asserted right to respond in self-defense of themselves, right? So we call it self-defense, and sometimes we see it referred to as collective self-defense when we're talking about partner forces, but these really aren't use ad bellum concepts. These are sort of a conflation of the two because they both are, typically you would understand these things to be happening within an ongoing armed conflict. The issue and the reason this raises use ad bellum questions is that often we have our troops abroad in places where deployed in places where that we are not in the midst of an active armed conflict so the risk here so on the one hand of course of course the us forces are always going to assert a right to defend themselves in the circumstances under which they are deployed right and we can't send them abroad without such an authority and yet we are sending them into places where we might have, for example, consent of the government at that time. So we might, we might be sending them into a situation in Iraq, let's say, where we have legal authority for placing them there at that time under international law is consent of the Iraqi government. And yet we know that their very presence there is going to inflame tensions. And so they might come under threats that result in them responding with force in a situation that Iraq would not have consented to, right? And so they might be using force on Iraqi territory that was not 
itself consented to by the Iraqi government. And as we've seen in, in recent cases, they might be using force on neighboring states because they're responding to a threat from a non-state actor in, in states where their presence wasn't consented to in the first place. And certainly the use of force was not consented to. And so that is always going to be a potential for escalation, not just in reality, but also it's a legal mechanism that results in sort of a legally justified ratcheting up of conflict into potential armed conflict, right? And without ever actually asserting use ad bellum, capital SD self-defense necessarily. And then the last element that sort of is part of this laundry list of ways in which the United States has sort of expanded the legal justifications for uses of force is, of course, the unwilling or unable doctrine. And you sort of, I thought, we'll come back to this, I mean, the unwilling or unable doctrine is near and dear to my heart, and I sort of thought you, you gave it a little bit of a pass. You point out that even if one grudgingly accepts that the unwilling or unable doctrine may or may not be currently part of Lex Lata, the United States has relied on the unwilling or unable doctrine to extend the geography of the battlefield in ways that that are just not even contemplated by, I hate to use the word traditional unwilling or unable doctrine, but even by those people who accept unwilling or unable doctrine wouldn't necessarily accept the way in which it's been used to extend the battlefield, doing so by virtue of essentially once again conflating use ad bellum and use in bello, so that we're in an armed conflict with a non-state actor, that non-state actor happens to be in a territory of a state that is unwilling or unable to even remove it from its territory, and that therefore gives the United States the the legal justification for exercising force in the territory of that state. Right, and and you're absolutely right that there is a potential conflation going on. So I, I think what you're getting at with the with the tradition, right? It, it, even as a critic of the unwilling unable test, it sounds like you are still acknowledging that even within the spectrum of unwilling unable theory. There is sort of more traditional views and less traditional views, right? And this is true for all of these U.S. government interpretations of international law that even if the initial legal theory here, unwilling, unable, is itself controversial, there are more and less aggressive versions of the theory, right? And that's also going to be true of imminence, right? So there's a sort of a spectrum of what is settled law on and what is more and more aggressive interpretations of when the United States or any state can respond to an imminent threat as well, right? So in this case, unwilling and able theory, of course, is that a state can use force on another state's territory when that state is, quote unquote, unwilling or unable to mitigate the threat that is posed by a non-state actor at that other acting state, right? And so under sort of the most constrained view of the unwilling and able theory, and I think the sort of strongest argument for unwilling and able theory, you have an actual attack emanating from another state or a, a true imminent attack, right, emanating from that other state. And the victim state here, let's call it the United States, right? So Al-Qaeda, so the 9-11 attacks coming from Al-Qaeda, which was being harbored by the Taliban government in Afghanistan, right? The United States using force in Afghanistan to go after Al-Qaeda is the sort of classic unwilling and able example, right? So that's the paradigmatic unwilling and able example. That gets extended when you see arguments that some Al-Qaeda soldier, right? Foot soldier, let's say, is has or or mid more mid-level al-Qaeda official is operating out of another state. And we assert, right, and the United States has at times asserted the the right to use force against any al-Qaeda anywhere it is found, even if it is found in another state, and even if there is not an actual or imminent threat emanating from that state. And so it's not doing a separate use ad bellum analysis. It's sort of using the existence of an armed conflict with Al-Qaeda to extend its ability to act on another state's territory. And that's the conflation that I think you're getting at. And I think that's a pretty aggressive interpretation of the unwilling, unable theory. I had not seen that interpretation used under more recently and until possibly the latest strikes in Syria. And so... I question what the legal theory was with respect to the strikes on these these facilities in Syria, because it, what we saw from the statements 
was not that there was a an actual or imminent threat coming out of Syria sufficient that the United States needed to risk in self-defense in theory to repel that attack, but rather that we had been attacked by these groups elsewhere, right, in Iraq, and we chose to respond in Syria. That seems to me to be a possible aggressive extension of the unwilling, unable theory beyond what, beyond sort of the core theory that I think is more defensible. Right. Well, we will we'll differ on how defensible it is. Although, right. <laughs> and, and you may not find even the core theory defensible. And I, I'm not going to fight for it because I right. think it's, I think it's really fraught. Yeah. Well, listen, so we're going to talk a, a lot about how it is that these incremental steps and these sort of interpretative moves, in your view, sort of short circuit the policy debate, which is the core part of your argument. But before we get to that, I want to circle back to the domestic law argument, right? So, and this, you know, is the constitutional law argument that there is an over-rely, there was this extension of the AUMF in a number of different uh, more or less defensible ways, as well as the extension of what associated forces means and whether it can be analogized to co-belligerency. So maybe we can just sort of walk through that very quickly to sort of set the table for the, the bigger normative argument that you're making in the piece. Okay, so there's there's two big things happening in, under domestic law, right? The the president has been pretty aggressive in interpreting, and when I say the president, I really mean executive branch lawyers have been in, in, aggressive in interpreting the president's constitutional authorities, right, to act unilaterally without Congress, and have been fairly aggressive in interpreting the president's statutory authorities. These, in particular, in the 9/11 era, the 2001, and even the 2002 AUMFs. And the, the AUMF interpretation, I think, gets a lot more play. And it'll be interesting to see what happens if either of them is repealed and or revised, because we might see, you know, this stuff operates a little bit like a balloon. If you if the president has statutory authority, he's less likely to rely on constitutional authority. But if you take away the statutory authority, you might find that more aggressive interpretations of constitutional authority. But in any event, what we've seen over the last 20 years or so is executive branch lawyers extending the interpretation of the 2001 AUMF in particular beyond the groups that were directly implicated in that text. And it's interesting, if you ask people to, to read the text, I think they, I, I find with my students and others that they're often surprised that Al-Qaeda is never mentioned in the text, the Taliban's never mentioned in the text, but they're obviously implicitly understood to be recognized as the actors who committed the attacks of 9-11 right? And those who harbored them. So that's what the text is focusing on. Very, very clearly tying the president's authority to using force against the groups that were responsible for 9-11. And in fact, the executive branch at that time, in the days after 9-11, right after the strikes, right? So we are still reeling from the horror of those of that day. The president asked Congress for more authority to use force basically against all future threats. And Congress did not grant the president that authority. So I think that's really important to keep in mind. And that piece of sort of executive branch congressional dynamic, that history is, to my view, very important in how we construe the AUMF to this day. And it get, it sort of disappears from the narrative. But it suggests to me that that Congress did not intend to give the president to, the power to use force to go after sort of any group that that was a threat. Now, the president does not claim the authority to use force against any group that poses a threat to the United States. The the way that the executive branch has in, uh, under the AUMF, I should say, the way the president and executive branch lawyers have interpreted that authority is that it needs to somehow be tied to those original groups. And so they've done so by arguing that a particular group is sufficiently connected to Al-Qaeda such that it comes within the ambit of the AUMF. And they've called that, those groups, associated forces of Al-Qaeda. There's also a separate theory that gets intertwined with this, which is a successor group theory. So a group that evolves out of a group that was once Al-Qaeda or a group evolves out of a group that was once an associated force of Al-Qaeda can then be in a successor group to an associated force. And that's really what we see with ISIS. So the legal theory extending the 2001 AUMF to ISIS to give the president power to use force against ISIS is really that ISIS evolved out of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Al-Qaeda in Iraq was either Al-Qaeda or an associated force of Al-Qaeda, and therefore the AUMF applies. And you know that starts to become rather attenuated, especially as these groups break off from or completely distance themselves from core Al-Qaeda. And at some point, we're going to face the question of what happens when these when various groups die out 
for example, more or less, right, or in one way or another, and cease to exist, and we're still holding detainees under a legal theory that we're in an armed conflict with those groups at Guantanamo. I think that's coming to a head right now. So all of these domestic questions are, are sort of up for grabs as Congress figures out whether or not to revise the AUMF and how to do so. And there's a real risk that, by, that, con- that what Congress does is rather than actually set itself up to be involved as a real active partner in these decisions going forward, that what it does instead is just delegate so much authority to the president that he just sort of never comes back. Right. We've now sort of canvassed most of the sort of incremental moves, the legal justifications, some of which, you know, you point out in in the article are questionable at best. Some of them you say are potentially beyond the pale. But nonetheless, you argue that the sort of veneer of legitimacy that these legal limitations place on the process, short circuit the policy debate and sort of obscure the process from public view so that there isn't sufficient interrogation of the reasons, of the wisdom, of these you know, extensions, expansions, initiations of armed conflict. So maybe we can just talk a little bit about that normative process and dig into one of the questions I really want to get at is, you know, what role do legal scholars have in, in that process? Yeah. So I think a really useful example of this is the is the associated forces example, and in particular the reliance on this concept of co-belligerency in that context. And I saw this play out in with both the courts and Congress. So the executive branch, so first just to back up for a second, one of the things that I think is happening when I argue that the executive branch sometimes uses international law relies on international law constraints as a means of expanding its own authority, I don't mean that it's doing so in bad faith. I think what's really happening is that the executive branch, executive branch lawyers, and also the courts and Congress, when they're trying to review what the executive branch is doing, are looking for limiting principles. They they want to give the president sufficient authority to act when necessary to do so, but they don't want to just say, Okay, do anything, do whatever you want. You know, you have full discretion. And so they're searching around for some limiting principle that they can impose. So the the Supreme Court, when it decided, yes, in Hamdi, yes, the president can detain American citizens under the AUMF, they didn't want to just say due process doesn't apply in war, right? Or, or, or due process applies radically differently in war with no limitations. And the president gets to decide as an on-off button when that is and who the, who's an enemy combatant and everything else. Instead, they're looking to international law to understand and constrain what those limits are. And in particular, they said, okay, you can detain in war, but you can only detain until the end of hostilities because that is the outer limit from international law. Right. And so they sort of look to international law as a means of providing that limiting principle to, I think, get them more comfortable with the idea of giving the president power to detain an American citizen, let's face it, indefinitely, because they were giving the president the power to determine when that conflict was going to end in a way. Although I want to add something that always gets forgotten, which is that O'Connor's opinion says when this stops looking like a traditional conflict in Afghanistan, that understanding is going to unravel. But that has been long forgotten in reliance on Hamdi since that time. And I think executive branch lawyers are doing that too when OLC, those, you know, the OLC memos on the targeted killing of an American citizen, the Al Alwaki memos, they are looking at a number of different domestic law constraints. They're looking at the fourth and fifth amendments to the constitution. They're looking at statutes governing the prohibiting the murder of, of US nationals abroad. They're looking at the assassination ban, the executive order. And with all of those, they are finding an exception. They're carving out an exception for this particular act, for the targeted killing of this American citizen in wartime, right? But instead of just saying, look, in wartime, the laws have a loophole or the laws have an exception or they cease to, to, to operate as normal, and the president has the decision over whether or not that we're in that state of affairs, instead, they say all of these things, the president has the authority to target and kill an American citizen. And it's and there's an exception to, for example, the murder statute or the, the assassination ban for targeted killings that are lawful under the laws of war. 
So it carves out an exception that is only as big as what international law permits. And that's not necessarily wrong. It's not necessarily wrong that that is what would have been intended, right? I mean, we, we can't, to the extent we can ever know that or to the extent that's even the right question to ask. The problem there, though, is that the courts and Congress stop probing once they call it international law, especially in the law of war space. And so at that point, they sort of feel like, okay, we've done our job. We've said that the president can detain as long as it's lawful under the laws of war, or OLC has said they're going to act, but only if it's lawful under the laws of war. And so we're going to stop looking. And at that point, they are giving the president and executive branch lawyers a tool to interpret those laws as they see fit. And ultimately, they're, as a result, interpret not only the contours of international law, but also the contours of these exceptions to domestic law, right? So by allowing these mechanisms to work out in a way in which Congress and the courts are not going to opine on what those limits of international law are, they're saying the president has the entire authority to determine, for example, any loophole to that he's going to claim in wartime to, for example, the operation of the Fourth and Fifth Amendment, right? The operation of the Due Process Clause. I said at the beginning, this this played out in the co-belligerency context, and I haven't even mentioned that yet, but I did see this play out in that context in which both the courts and Congress ultimately weighed in on whether or not the AUMF applied to associated forces. So for years, the president was was claiming the right to use force against associated forces, and in particular to detain, the way this came up with the courts and Congress was in in the detention context, to detain at Guantanamo unprivileged belligerents was the was the term the Obama administration created, who were members of associated forces, not just members of al-Qaeda. And in arguing to the courts that the president had the authority to do so, they crafted this definition of whom they could detain by saying we can detain associated forces. And associated forces are those who belong to, who are groups that have joined the fight alongside al-Qaeda against the United States under long-standing principles of co-belligerency. And by doing that, my view is that they were pointing to this purported concept of international law as if it was a limiting principle. But the reality is that international law does not provide that limiting principle. International law doesn't really provide the content for determining the contours of of this 2001 statute, right? This congressional statute, the AUMF. And it certainly doesn't provide the contours for determining who Congress has authorized the president to use force against. And co-belligerency itself is not a standard that has clear, it's not a standard that was ever used historically to apply to non-state actors, for example. And so it's not a it's not a standard that can easily be used to define the limits of when a non-state actor has joined a conflict, and certainly not for the purposes of understanding whether Congress intended to include them in a statute, right? It's just it's just inapposite. And it certainly doesn't provide the limiting principle that the president was claiming it did. But I think in doing that and sort of suggesting that there was this limiting principle from international law that mollified the courts because they were clearly looking for a limiting principle. It's, it's a lot easier to say, sure, you can have this limited additional power than to say you can decide the AUMF applies to whoever you want it applies to. Right. And I think Congress did the same thing in ultimately enshrining codifying the the president's detention authority as including associated forces. And to be clear, I'm not saying that this what that the result is that the is that executive branch lawyers interpret this term, this legal term associated forces now that they've created as applying to anyone they want. I think they've actually been fairly they've done a lot of work in trying to determine whether it applies to any particular group and we see that in the al-shabaab example because it wasn't just immediately decided that they were an associated force so it's not that it's not doing any work it's much more interesting than that right and so that's why i think this story is not just about lawyers as rubber stamps it's a far more nuanced story but ultimately it's a story it is a story about obfuscation not intentional obfuscation necessarily not always sometimes but it's a story about the courts and congress not doing their job Okay. So, I mean, you, we, we could spend a lot of time about talking about how <laughs> the courts and Congress aren't doing their job. And, and this is an old story, yeah. right? I mean, so, I mean, John Hart Ely's great book on the Vietnam War and the ways in which Congress completely abdicated its responsibility to exercise a check on executive power in the escalation of, of the conflict in Vietnam tells the same story, right? I mean, Congress really just didn't want to have the responsibility. It was a lot easier for congressmen to allow the president to do whatever he wants and then take the blame if things went bad, but Congress didn't want to 
assert the responsibility and, and take the blame if it turned out that they had made the wrong call. And I think that, well, I'll just say that I, I think that, I think that's right. I think we see that continuing. And I think that this move, this, this pointing to international law as a limiting principle is in many respects a way of allowing Congress to feel like it's doing some work, but not in fact be doing that work and the courts as well. Right. So this then I think brings us to the role of lawyers, both within the executive branch and I think legal scholars. And so it strikes me that, I mean, I think this is just such an interesting argument, this idea that law, international law is being looked to as the limiting principle and therefore being used in a way to, in a permissive fashion that facilitates the expansion of executive power. It facilitates this incremental slip into an expansion and extension of armed conflict. But as you say, part of that process is facilitated by reliance on increasingly dubious interpretations of the international law principles that are supposed to be operating as limiting principles. And those interpretations are being provided by government lawyers in the OLC and elsewhere. I guess one of the sort of ideas I want to float here and sort of a critique of the academy and, and the international law scholars in the United States is they tend to get, give these arguments a pass, right? I mean, even if you look at the Soleimani strike, which you know, I, I think there was a fairly wide consensus that that was probably unlawful. But even then, you know, I remember listening to the podcast, the Lawfare podcast after the Soleimani strike. And, you know, there was sort of humming and hawing saying, well, maybe it was lawful, you know, under certain interpretations. And I just, there tends to be, I think that the rigor with which American justifications for the use of force are subjected to by the American legal academy is not the same as would be subjected to Russian or Chinese uses of force in similar circumstances, right? And, you know, I think that if we're going, particularly, as you pointed out, these international law principles are being looked to as limiting principles, then it behooves both government lawyers and international law scholars to hold the government's feet to the fire on their interpretation of these principles. You know, and there's this tendency within, and again, I mean, I point to lawfare and just security. I write for just security from time to time. So, you know, I'm, I guess part of the guilty crowd, but there's this sort of tendency to sort of suggest, well, the United States does it, so it's custom. I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying, oversimplifying, but there is this sort of tendency of suggesting that, well, if the Amer this is the American interpretation of international law, as though somehow that suggest that it's the interpretation of international law, when in fact, it is an extreme outlier, as you point out in your piece and saying, look, I mean, some of these interpretations that the government has taken are extreme outlier positions within international law. But that fact that it's an outlier position and therefore really not reflective of international law isn't sufficiently engaged in a lot of the discourse and discussion of the American position. So I don't know, what do you think about that? There is a lot to unpack in this, and there's a lot going on there. And I have a number of different views in there, and, and some of them you're going to sort of maybe radically agree with, and some of them you're not going to love. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one thing, that the, I'll just get the, the one that you're not going to love out of the way first, which is that I think that we have to differentiate between the U.S. government being criticized by academics from abroad and the U.S. government actually being in a radically different position from other governments. And those are really different. And I got an opportunity to see how different those were when I worked in the government and met with counterparts in other, right, in other states and saw how much they were often converging toward the U.S. position once they found themselves in situations in which they also wanted to act, right? And the question of whether or not they wanted to act in particular, right? So as, as ISIS started to, to attack Europe, we saw a big difference in, in European positions, for example, about whether or not, about, you know, unwilling and able. Like suddenly, states that were criticizing us were using force in Syria under a theory that could only be defined as an unwilling and able theory, for example, right? So there is a distinction between, uh, so, so what is often assumed to be the U.S. being an outlier, it may be more of the U.S. being an outlier among the academic community than it is among its foreign allies, right? And frankly, even its adversaries. 
So I think that that's right, right? I think that, you know, I'm, I'm Canadian and even Canada sort of invoked the unwilling or unable doctrine to oh, justify yeah. its position in Syria. And I was like, oh, so, since when? But And I should tell you, I had really interesting conversations with Canadian government counterparts that I was really surprised when I was, and I was surprised to learn their positions because they were very different than what I expected them to be. Yeah, no, I've had those conversations too, and they're different than I would have expected them to be as well. But again, though, I think that part of the problem is that this exactly reflects this problem of the people who are talking on these issues tend to reflect the NATO perspective. So, you know, the United States is not always entirely alone as the outlier. I mean, they always have the United Kingdom and Israel and Australia, you know, close behind. And, you know, in some instances, the Canadians. And Germany. Right. So, but the Global South is nowhere to be found in that taxi, right? right? I mean, they're saying, no, we totally disagree. We fundamentally, profoundly disagree with this idea of unwilling or unable. And so when people say, oh, well, it's, it's custom because the five of us are doing it now. I have a real problem with that. And and so I think that there is this sort of very Western European, well, it's US and all the, the Western Europeans are now agreeing with us. So it must be custom kind of a perspective. And so I just want to push back against that and say, like, the rest of the world is not on board with this. And yeah, so you're if you're right really going to so. take custom seriously and, and think that custom is really widespread state practice, not just the five of us, that's a problem. I think you're right to do so. I, I wouldn't necessarily mean the rest of the world. I think that you're right. Certainly, I think that you're going to get a lot of pushback on this theory from Latin America. But I don't know that you would from, say, Russia, China, right, et cetera. I'm not even sure. It would be really interesting to do a project similar to the one we did on the, the serious strikes with respect to humanitarian intervention. It would be really interesting to do a similar project that we did for Just Security on the unwilling and able theory and see if we could get, you know, because that experience for me felt like, we talk about custom and whether or not uh, all the time without really engaging in a rigorous study of, of, of every state, right? We don't really almost ever try to figure out what every state's view is on something. And so that was really kind of an interesting thought experiment that resulted in an actual experiment for us of trying to actually see if we can map out any state that had, a, that had made a stated view on a particular act and, and see if we could sort of watch whether or not it was true that custom was developing in real time, which I think was an argument that was being made. And what we actually found in that situation was there was a huge disparity between political attitudes on the one hand and legal views on the other. But in any event, back to your original book, because I wanted to go to back to what I really did agree with, which is the question about who within the United States is focusing on these legal questions. And I think there is a lot of truth to what I think under was underlying some of what you were arguing, which is that even international scholars and even people focused on international relations and international issues in the United States are often very isolated from the rest of the world. And so I think it's important to think about who within, for example, who within the US government is making these decisions on questions of international law. So even within the United States government alone, you've got real experts in international law who are regularly, regularly grappling with foreign counterparts. For example, they're going to international meetings, they are meeting with foreign counterparts, they're receiving criticism of our actions. And those people are generally more or less consolidated in the State Department, right? And you've got a whole office of lawyers in the State Department, L, near and dear to my heart, where I served for many years, that is the recipient of right a lot of knowledge about what the rest of the world thinks about our actions. You've also got lawyers who are primarily like constitutional law scholars in the Office of Legal Counsel, who nevertheless end up opining on a lot of questions of international law because they are so intimately intertwined with con- questions of constitutional law. And they're not necessarily always getting their international law guidance or and certainly not deferring to international law guidance from the State Department. So that's one small piece of this in, interaction, right? Where even within, right, even if the United States itself is fairly, is more isolated than other states vis-a-vis understanding outside views, you at least have offices inside the United States government that are much more integrated with the, with the outside world, right? And you have offices that are less integrated. And so to the extent you've got an office of constitutional law scholars determining the contours of international law sufficient to create a loophole in domestic law protections when we're thinking about targeting and killing a U.S. citizen abroad, 
you're not going to have, you're not going to be actually engaging with limiting principles that are necessarily going to be anything near what other states would view as limiting principles. So that's like as attenuated as it gets. You also raised some points about the academy, and I think that plays out the same way. I mean, so one thing I'll say is that on the Soleimani strike, I saw a lot of criticism, me among them. And you're just, you're going to see a lot of differences of views within the illegal academy, but there's a lot of going in and out of the government that you see. And I think there is some receptivity to administrations that you are inclined toward in the, in the academy and you know I'm more unwilling. So so the Soleimani strikes happened under the Trump administration and I think we saw a lot of criticism of those strikes. We I think we saw a lot less of the serious strikes which happened which were the first strikes under the the first major strikes under the Biden administration. For me, I feel a great relief to be able to once again criticize an administration that I think takes this stuff seriously. And so I thought it was really important to do so. I would hope others would as well. There's a lot going on here. There's this issue, but there's also the fact that, as I think you suspect, that as with the variety of lawyers inside the government, in academia as well, not all academics, not all legal academics in the United States who are thinking about these issues are necessarily truly integrated in, in, in international law thought and in global international law thought, right? With other scholars abroad. Anthea Roberts has a fantastic book, which I know you know, is International Law International, in which she's very critical of this. I was very close to Anthea when she was writing this book. So I really, so a lot of it is near and dear to my heart. And I think, you know, we argued about plenty of it, but I think a lot of it is really an accurate criticism of the U.S. Academy, especially the U.S. International Law Academy. And so the reality is that we that we are operating in an extremely in an, in an enormous country, right? Where we are working with faculty on faculties that are primarily domestically oriented, and so it is sort of a constant uphill battle to retain to keep our fingers in the international discourse, and we need to do so, and it's incumbent upon us to do so. But it's a lot harder for American international lawyers to do so than it is for an international law lawyer in Europe, for example. And I guess, I mean, related to that, and this is a point that I think that you make in this most recent Just Security piece, is, you know, the conflation of domestic and international law arguments, right? So you make the point in the essay that the domestic and international law justifications for these uses of force are really very much intertwined. And I think that that's right. But the problem that results from that, I find, is that in the public discourse, and even in the discourse of legal academics engaging in the public discourse, they tend to confuse the two, right? So, you know, you'll hear people talking about the AUMF when they're talking about the international legality of some use of force, and you're like, what well, the AUMF is entirely irrelevant to the international law justification. What are you talking about? They, they are intertwined in very, very interesting ways. And I think the real contribution of your essay is pointing out the extent to which the international law is sort of facilitating or providing the limiting factor in in permitting or allowing the courts and Congress to permit the use of force. But one does have to retain you know, the, the separate aspects uh, of the legal arguments. And, and so I think that that's another thing that we could really sort of benefit from emphasizing is that, you know, like in, in talking about these issues, we really need to keep them distinct. As, as much as they're intertwined, they really, I think, uh, do operate independently too. Right. No, I, I completely agree with you. You will see someone actually use the AUMF as a justification for why we might be able to use, why the United States might be able to use force in a particular context as a matter of international law. I've seen students do this. I think that you're right that it that there are probably other people who use sort of messy reasoning. I've seen U.S. officials do it, frankly. But when I see those people do that, those are not people who have real international law expertise. Part of the issue is that that's also going on inside the U.S. government, right? Is that not not everyone has international law expertise, but they might be a national security lawyer. There might be someone who is working in this realm and who, you know, a little bit of knowledge can sometimes be dangerous and sort of ends up making decisions. You know, and I, I think ultimately this is a really important argument for making sure you have the actual experts in the room. And this gets to, you know, your piece on the the... Uh, I forget the exact title, the International Law 
expanding the executive branch. Oh, international law constraints as domestic power, maybe? Yeah. Or as executive power. International executive law power. constraints. Yeah. It was a long time ago for me, too. Yeah. But you're using the Anwar al-Awlaki killing, the targeted killing, as sort of the lens through which you look at this. And I, what I thought was really fascinating is in your analysis of the both the OLC memo and then I think the DOJ white paper, is the fact that they don't do precisely what I just suggested that one ought to do, which is to say, well, is this permissible under constitutional and domestic law? And secondly, is it permissible under international law? And so you get a tick in each box and therefore, yes. They actually said, oh, well, is it permissible under domestic law? Well, maybe if it's, the, if it's permissible under international law. So you really get only a tick in one box, right? And this is, I think, works both ways, right? Sometimes, as you said, they, you, know, you get the tick in the AUMF box, and so that somehow justifies the international law argument. And so they're sort of bootstrapping or conflating these two very distinct areas of law. And it's not to say that I don't think they can be intertwined. You know, so my... In my doctoral work, I was actually looking at how you might incorporate international law, use that bottom principles into constitutions as a way of constraining executive branch impulses to go to war. So I, I do think that one can think of these regimes operating together in very important and useful ways. But at least conceptually, you have to remember that they are distinct unless you actually are incorporating one principle into the other, which hasn't been done in the United States. I have a slightly different take on that. I mean, I think that as a matter of international law, you cannot use domestic, U.S. domestic law to satisfy an international law question. Full right. Stop, right? The, sure. Whether or not something is included in a statute, in a congressional statute, really has no bearing on whether or not it is lawful as a matter of international law, unless unless you're trying to argue that Congress thinks it's a, it's lawful and therefore that's opinio juris of the United States, fine, right? That's, right. that's It might be evidence of opinio juris, but it's not, but it doesn't answer the question. The other way, I think, is a lot more complicated because I actually think there are instances in which U.S. domestic law, in which under U.S. domestic law, we can look to international law to understand what's intended, right? So when the framers use the concept of war in the Constitution, well, what did they mean by war, right? I think we can look and see, well, what did war mean at that time? What did it mean to declare war? Why did we have declarations of war, right? What does it mean that we no longer do that as a matter of international law? Does that then affect domestic law, right? I, I, so I think that the other way does work. And I think it might be right to interpret the AUMF in accordance with international law. Congress might not have been explicitly thinking about this, but there might be some background understanding that, for example, the United States does not, at least now, raise a country to the ground when it goes to war. And therefore, that is not what the AUMF is authorizing, right? And that is based on an understanding that it's unlawful under the laws of war, right? So, so I think it's totally reasonable to incorporate international law into what Congress was doing when it enacted that statute and into, into our interpretations of the Constitution. The problem occurs when we use international law as the only limiting principle on a loophole or a constraint or an exception to the otherwise normal operation of domestic law. And we stop then interrogating what is the international law that you're using as this limiting principle, right? Congress, one of my concerns is that Congress in, in doing more powers reform now will turn to international law principles almost you know, as a way of finding some limiting principle in what they're trying to do. But then sort of end their work there and not continue interrogating, well, what is the United, what is the president going to interpret as this international law term, for example, as meaning? And what work is it actually doing? Yeah. So I actually entirely agree with everything you just said. I mean, I think Justice Scalia is just doing cartwheels in his grave over your uh, suggestion that international law should be used to inform domestic interpretation. But I entirely agree. And, and you know, I make the same arguments with respect to the Japanese constitution where Article 9 of the Japanese constitution uses USAID Balam principles, and therefore you need to look to international law and USAID Balam to properly interpret those principles of constitutional law. And I also entirely agree with this idea that if you're going to use international law principles, then you have to then interrogate them. And, and I guess my last thought on that is that, you know, if you are going to come up with a new AUMF, you know, I guess the question I have is, well, why not then actually incorporate use ad valum principles. Like, I mean, that would be really helpful, right? Like a, incorporating, even within a statute, this, you know, this notion that the United States will only use force in self-defense as that is understood in international law, as, as opposed to using language, as you say, like using language that 
often doesn't have a clear meaning in international law, right? It's the suggestion well, is it's coming from international law, but they don't often they often use language that's just a little bit different. You know, hostilities in in the War Powers Act, for example. What does that mean, right? I mean, why not use a term that's actually used in international law that has a very clear and, and well understood meaning, as opposed to just coming up with some term that everyone's going to go, hmm, what does that mean? I do think that if they're going to use, if they're going to rely on the international law, they should use the actual legal terms of art from international law. My concern with an AUMF that simply says the president can act whenever the United States as a whole can act in self-defense is that, first of all, we know what the, that the president's interpretation of that under international law is extremely broad at this point, right. right? So that's giving the president significant power. I mean, for the last 20 years, the U.S. government has been justifying everything it's done under international law with the exception, potentially, of humanitarian intervention, right? right? So that would ultimately mean, under the executive branch lawyer's view, that Congress has off, not just, you know, it's not just the, the president can only act on constitutional authority or can only act when he can fit it into the 2001 AUMF, but that Congress has pre-authorized the president to act any time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I United wasn't States suggesting that was the only <laughs> limiting principle. That would be, I right, agree. Right. I see. I see. Oh, you're yeah. adding that on top. Yeah. yeah. I don't see, I think that would be useful to say, and, you know, and when exercising this legal authority, like, for example, if they, if they enacted an AUMF, to use force against ISIS specifically and just left it at that, right? Adding something that suggested, and when the United States is using force, it must do so in accordance with the UN Charter, for example. Right. I think the only plausible argument is that the, the president has to act in accordance with the UN Charter anyway, under both international and domestic law. But I don't see anything wrong with, with Congress adding it into a statute unless it means that next time they forget to, the president thinks that that's, <laughs> that that's authority to act in violation of the UN Charter. Right. Well, listen, I've taken way too much of your time already. I mean, this seems like a good place to sort of tie a ribbon on the arguments. But before I let you go, I did want to ask you for three recommendations of reading that you think our listeners would be, you know, perhaps may not have been introduced to, but you think is important or interesting. So I currently have on my desk, and I'm really excited to read it, but I haven't yet read it, this new paper by David Luban called Complicity and Lesser Evils, A Tale of Two Lawyers, which is about the morality of government lawyering in the face of evil. Do you stay? Do you go? Is there any moral defense to staying? And it's a biography of these two individuals during the Nazi era. And I'm really, really excited to read that. In terms of recent work that I can recommend because I have read it, um, I think Monica Hakimi's work, particularly the use at Bellum's regulatory form, is really, really interesting and different. And, we have a podcast um, episode really on that. <laughs> yes, and I'm excited. To, I'm really excited to listen to it because I think that that's she's doing just really interesting, important work thinking about the reality of international law practice, which, as you know, is near and dear to my heart. And then, because you told me that I could mention sci-fi, I want to put in a plug for my favorite short story of all time. I read it a hundred years ago, "The Machine Stops" by Ian e. Foster, which is a short story. It was somehow unimaginably written in 1909, because it, if you read it now, I don't want to give anything away, but you'll read it now feeling like you are living it currently in our current Zoom world. So it's absolutely unimaginable to me that he wrote this by like candlelight or whatever. And I don't want to ruin it. But the reason I bring it up in this context is that the thing that has haunted me since I read it is this concept of incrementalism and the way we get used to things and the way things sort of in part in that book it's both the incrementalism of the steady crumbling of her world and the way that she gets used to that until it finally really truly does fall apart. But we also see sort of this antecedent glimpse of the tiny steps that kind of build on each other to make up the dystopian world in which she finds herself. And so that has always stuck with me as something that I want to just sort of remain attuned to. And I'm not going to say that it's sort of inspired my work in any way, but it's always been there in the back of my mind. And I do think that part of what I'm trying to do in my work in this piece and another work is lay bare how that incrementalism is happening, even when it's, I think, I think the, pe the very people who are engaging in it aren't necessarily fully aware of it. As I said, I think they're acting in good faith. I think it's important for all of us to have our eyes wide open and right. be able to, to stay vigilant and, and look at it head on. Wow. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great point to end on. So 
Rebecca, thank you so much for, for taking the time. This was really interesting. I think our, our listeners have a lot of food for thought here. And stay safe in the pandemic. Thank you. You as well. This was really fun. Thank you for having me. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. Be sure to tune in next episode when I will be speaking with an expert on Japanese perspectives on the USAID bomb regime and how the recent efforts to reinterpret the war renouncing provision of the constitution may affect Japan's posture with respect to the USAID bomb regime. And again, if you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes, please do send me an email. My contact info is on the podcast website, which is jibjabpodcast.com. You can also find links to the material discussed today and all the reading recommendations today on the website. If you're enjoying the podcast or are finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your own blog posts or other writing. And do tell your friends, colleagues, or students all about it. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at, at jibjabpodcast for updates on the coming episodes and other commentary. This podcast is produced by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, stay safe.